growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Is stuff wrong? No, stuff's not wrong. We all have stuff and need some stuff. We all want some stuff. Stuff in itself is not wrong. But here's the question, and this is a good question. Do I have stuff or does stuff have me? If you belong to Jesus Christ, should it make a difference in your life? So what that his payment was sufficient for our sins? So what difference does it make in my life? What impact is it having? How is my life different as a result of those facts that Paul has just built a case for? So what? I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. We've reached the halfway point of the book of Colossians in our series entitled, It's All About Him. The Apostle Paul has spent the first two chapters confronting the false teachers that were corrupting the theology of the church at Colossae. Their attacks on the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ were met head-on by Paul's passionate and powerful case for Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, whose sacrifice on the cross made payment for our sins. But having dealt with the faulty theology, Paul now turns his attention to the faulty practices of the church. In essence, Paul's saying, okay, we've dealt with the false teachers. We've dealt with the problems that they're bringing into your theology. I've shown you how Christ is sufficient and how Christ is God in the flesh. Now, let's talk about you. As Pastor Clay is going to show us today, having a correct theology doesn't mean much if it doesn't result in a correct life. Now here's Pastor Clay with this week's message. It's rather ironic, I think. Um, by the way, I think ironies are kind of like coincidences. Um, it's just God choosing to work anonymously, I, I think is is really what it is. But I think it's rather ironic that today I am preaching from Colossians chapter 3. What makes it so ironic is today is my birthday. And Colossians chapter 3, as some of you know, Colossians chapter 3 is my life chapter. Um, I, as a matter of fact, have told many people uh, through the years That if I could only have one chapter of the book of the Bible in my possession, if I was stranded on some desert island or or whatever, if I in some prison or whatever, if I could only have one chapter of the book of Bible of of the Bible in my possession, and I had a choice, I would choose the book of Colossians. In one chapter, I would choose Colossians chapter three, not because it's any more important than the rest of the Bible. It's not. But because it has been particularly meaningful to me and has, I believe, affected my life in a profound way. I have no idea how many times I've read it through the years, but it continues to to challenge and to convict and to change my life more into the image of Jesus Christ. God continues to use Colossians chapter 3 to put me on the path that He has for my life. And so for me, it has had a profound effect. We are working our way through the book of Colossians in a series 
by that name and entitled, say it with me, It's All About Him. It's all about Christ. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Colossians over and over again as we work our way through the book. It's interesting, one of the things that I enjoy about working through an entire book at a time of the Bible, rather than jumping here and there, and there, there's a time and place perhaps to do that, but one of the reasons I like to work through an entire book of the Bible is that as you do, a lot of times you can begin to see some of the, some of the patterns and some of the trends that show up in that book, the emphasis that the writer uh, seems to be uh, bringing out and that he wants his readers uh, to understand. In the book of Colossians, for instance, we have been seeing in these early days, in the early chapters, chapters 1 and 2, clearly that the Apostle Paul is, uh, the the writer of the book of uh, Colossians, the Apostle Paul is taking on the false teachers, and if you've been with us in the series, you've heard me say this a bunch of times, he was taking on the false teachers who were corrupting the theology of the church in Colossae. They They were corrupting the belief systems of the church in Colossae. Those false teachers were known primarily as the Gnostics and the Judaizers. Again, I've been into great depth on that. If you want to know more about them, go back to listen to some of the other podcasts where we deal with that. But the two primary groups of false teachers in Colossae were the Gnostics and the Judaizers. Their effect was essentially the same. They were undermining and attacking the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Who's heard me say that before? They were attacking, they were undermining the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In other words, they were saying that Jesus Christ is less than God and Jesus Christ's payment on the cross was less than sufficient for the payment of our sins. And, as I've also said numerous times throughout this study, it is the same challenge that the church faces today. Because they may not necessarily be called Gnostics or Judaizers uh, these days, but there are still teachers out there that undermine and attack both the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and as we have, I've been giving you my outline of the book, and we start it with the idea of Christ presented in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, where Paul opens his letter with this, this beautiful presentation of Jesus Christ, and he's beginning his, his argument, if you will. He follows that with building a strong case for Christ preeminent, exalted, above all others, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. And as I said, those themes will show up throughout the, the book, but, but there's a concentration, I believe, in those particular areas of the book or the letter um, in those verses. And then he builds on that with Christ protected in chapter 2, all of chapter 2 really, verses 1 through 23, which we looked at last week. And If you're here, you remember I said the idea is, the emphasis is, is that you and I have to protect our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We have to protect our theology, our understanding of God. And I use those big terms, Christology and soteriology, and sorry if those were, uh, you know, words that 
that just you don't normally hear, but that's just what it is. We have to protect those ideas because they're central to our belief system. Christ protected. And in uh, that section of chapter 2, and I had a lot of fun in chapter 2 last week, uh, but in that section there in chapter 2, Paul makes this great Christological statement in verses 9 and 10 where he declares that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, which then leads him in verse 14 to make this fantastic statement, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way. Uh, The word in Greek means out of the midst. He has taken it out of the way, out of the midst, having nailed it to the cross. I have three words for you. Amazing. Amazing. Now, I don't know about you and your life. Maybe you've just led a great life, but I, I, have, I have sinned deeply in my life. And when I think about the fact that he has taken all of the sin, all the consequences of the sin, all of the, all of the stuff that goes with the mistakes that I've made in my life and the sins, the sinful decisions that I've made in my life, he has taken them out of the way. He has taken them out of my midst and he has nailed them to the cross. Amazing. Every bit of it, he's taken care of it. Which then (laughs) leads Paul to be able to say in verse 15, if you were with us last week, you had to know that we we had to say verse 15 again this week because as I did say last week, verse 15 is Paul's version of the Nana song where he says in verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning the the spiritual, the demonic forces, Satan and and all of those that, that work against the kingdom of God, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. When he had disarmed, the Greek word, by the way, literally means having stripped. Having disarmed, having stripped the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul says that when Jesus Christ nailed it all to the cross, he nailed, listen, not only the payment for our sins, but the not only the penalty for sin, but also the power of sin and its, its control over our lives, which Paul's going to deal with in chapter 3. And he says when he, when he did that, he makes a public display, having stripped the, the rulers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them. In, in the ancient days, as I understand it, oftentimes when, a, when two kingdoms fought, when two nations or countries or kings or rulers, when they fought, whoever was victorious in that battle... Whoever was, was left alive of the, of the defeated army, of the rulers, the rulers or the kings, oftentimes they would be left alive, or the generals, they would be forced to walk in a procession, in a parade, in honor of the conquering king. And oftentimes the king would ride in a chariot with a, with a single white horse pulling the chariot. And his defeated enemy would have to walk before him as a sign that they had been totally and completely and utterly defeated by this conquering king. And the picture that Paul is painting for us is that Jesus Christ rides triumphantly in conquering victory over his and our enemies, Satan, hell, the grave. And they have to admit that they have been utterly and totally defeated by him. Amazing. And so, having said all that and led into all that, 
we have in this first section of the book of Colossians. Uh, much more of what I would call a theological tone in the letter. You can clearly see that in chapters 1 and 2, we have uh, where, where Paul is confronting and combating the false teachers. I mean, you can see it over and over again. He's taking them on. And he's using their own terminology to defeat them with. And we talked about that. In chapters 3 and 4, though, there is a shift where Paul begins to take a different tact and the emphasis is on challenging and changing the church. In essence, Paul's saying, okay, we've dealt with the false teachers. We've dealt with the problems that they're bringing into your theology. I've shown you how Christ is sufficient and how Christ is God in the flesh. Now, let's talk about you. Uh, Paul moves into what I sometimes refer to as the so what section of Scripture. So what? What does any of this mean? What does any of those first two chapters mean? What, what does any of this uh, what, what, So what that Christ is God in the flesh? Okay. So what that his payment was sufficient for our sins? So what difference does it make in my life? What impact is it having? How is my life different as a result of those facts that Paul has just built a case for? So what? That's where Paul's going in chapters 3 and 4. Let's begin today in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible... Please follow along. You'll also find the text up on the screen as well. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we uh, open now this second section of the book of Colossians, we get to chapter 3, a a chapter that has had a profound effect, uh, I believe, Lord God, on my life. I want to thank you for it. I want to thank you for how your spirit has spoken to me through it, through the years. And the amazing thing about your word is that there is still so much more to learn. I could read it a, a hundred times, a thousand times, or a million times, and you're still speaking to me through it, still teaching me truths. Part of that may be, Lord, that I'm just slow, but, but part of it is just the power of your word, which is quick and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide soul and spirit and even joint and marrow. And I ask again today, as I often do, that you, the great physician, would do surgery on our hearts and lives. Each person in this place is at at their own particular place in their spiritual journey. Some may be in here who have walked with you for many, many years. Some may be in this place that have walked with you for only a short period of time. And some may be in this place that are still not even sure about all of this. They're still 
debating the validity of this whole Jesus thing or whether they really need Him as their Savior. Wherever each person is, Lord God, I'm just asking you as I always do that you meet us right where we are and take us to where you would desire for us to be. I don't know what problems are in people's lives right now necessarily. I don't know uh, all the issues that are going on, but I know that we live in a world that is sin-cursed, and at any particular time, there's all kinds of stuff that can be going on. Lord, would you show yourself to us in this place today? Each person has come here today has come with, I, I hope, a desire to know you more intimately and more deeply. I have the privilege of presenting your word, and and I am always privileged to do that and to be your messenger boy. But ultimately, Holy Spirit, it's a work between you and each one of us in this place. So again, please meet them, meet me, meet us, accomplish your purposes, and be glorified in the process in Christ's strong name. Amen. I want to try and run through this morning with you Three ideas that you need to be mindful of as I look at Colossians chapter 3 and just these first seven verses. By the way, we'll probably be several weeks um, on uh, this third chapter. We'll probably be a few weeks on this idea of Christ practiced, which is the next part of the outline, put into practical application for our lives. And so uh, three kind of uh, ideas to be mindful of. First one is this. Here's what it looks like. Making up your mind requires a decision. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, Paul's a statement or reference to raised up there in, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 is referring back to a statement that he made last, that we looked at last week in chapter 2 that you may remember where he said, having been buried with him in baptism, it's this picture he's painting, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also, here it is, raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul's referring to that analogy that he used back in chapter 2. He's referring to that here in chapter 3 in verse 1 when he says, if therefore or if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking Christ who's seated at the right hand. Keep seeking the things above. This idea of, of making a decision, making up my mind requires a decision. If then you have been raised up with Christ. And it begs the question, have you been raised up with Christ? Have you? Have you established this fact in your life that you have not just the intellectual knowledge of who Jesus Christ is or what Jesus Christ did, and not even so much an intellectual belief that he did those things, but if you have been raised up with Christ, if you have been buried with him, as he said in, in verse 12 and verse 8, if you've been buried with him, in other words, if, if you have identified with the death of Jesus Christ as sufficient for the, big, big word, for the substitutionary atonement of your sins, the payment for your sins, 
If you have, if you have identified with that, if you have been raised up with him, in other words, if you, if you believe that he was bodily raised from the dead as, as evidence that his sacrifice was sufficient for your sins, if you have, then keep seeking the things of above. Keep seeking the things of God. Making up your mind requires a decision. It makes me uh, think of those words, and some of you I know have read them, uh, where uh, Joshua, the leader of the nation of Israel, when, at a time in the life of the nation of Israel where, where they're kind of a, at a crossroads and, and you know, what, what are we going to do? Are we gonna, you know, we're going into this promised land. We're going to do this thing. And in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, if you don't want to serve the Lord, then choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river when we were back in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land that you are living. Would you say that last phrase with me, please? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It requires a decision. We're going to make up our mind about this. We're going to choose to serve the Lord. You got you to choose. As the old saying goes, the middle of the road is a dangerous place to stand. Apostle Peter uh, makes this interesting statement uh, when he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. See, that's the question. Is, am I an alien or a stranger? Is it more about here or is it more about there? I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Jesus clearly doesn't try and hide any of his feelings about this halfway if there is such a thing, which there's not halfway Christianity stuff, when in his letter to the church at Laodicea, he says this in Revelation chapter 3, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We looked at that last year. We walked through the book of Revelation. But making up your mind requires a decision. Is it? Have I made that decision? Have I lined up with Christ? Have I, have I fallen in with Christ? Then it has to be all in with Christ. The New Testament doesn't see the Bible in, for a, as a whole, for that matter. It seems to know nothing about some sort of halfway uh, investment or, or involvement or belief in, in God or the kingdom of God, but all in. I've got to start there. Paul says, if, if then, then keep seeking. By the way, it's a present continual tense. Keep on doing this, which is the second idea to be mindful of. Setting your mind requires a desire. Making up your mind requires a decision, but setting your mind requires desire. Verse 2 and 3, Paul says this. If then, he starts in verse 1, if then you have been, then in verse 2 and 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Going back to the if-then clause. If then you've been raised with Christ. If you've been buried with him in baptism. If you've been raised up with Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul begins to touch on what is the universal problem that we all face. The pull of this world the focus of this world, 
or the focus and the pull of that world, the things above, the, the, the material versus the eternal, the physical versus the spiritual. And it's, it's deciding which one of those is the one that I am involved in and that I am following. Having made a decision, I have to set my mind on the things above. And that requires a desire in my heart and in my life to do just that. Paul is addressing that issue. Oh, it's so hard. You know why it's so hard? I just, can I just, I, I've, never, I've never seen Jesus with my physical eyes. I've, I've never heard Jesus speak to me audibly. I've never, I've never been to heaven. And so I must operate in the realm of faith. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that that Jesus never revealed himself to me. He most certainly has. That doesn't mean that Jesus has never spoken to me. He has spoken to me at times that were so clear that it was almost as if it were audible. But the truth is, this this is what we can see and touch and smell and taste. This is the realm in which we exist. And so this is always grabbing our attention. This is always pulling us away from the things up there. Isn't it? Or is, is it just me? Everybody else, no problem with the, with the pull of the world, the things of the world. And can I say this? It is compounded for us living here in America. It really is. You know why? Because we have so much stuff. 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 And if we got stuff, you got to take care of your stuff. Right? And the stuff we don't have is the stuff we want. And the stuff that we have too much for, we have to buy rent stuff units to put our stuff in. And the stuff we get loses its luster when the new model comes out. And the stuff we end up not wanting, we sell at a yard sale or Craigslist or eBay. And take the money and buy more stuff. Now, is stuff wrong? No. Stuff's not wrong. We all have stuff and need some stuff. We all want some stuff. Stuff in itself is not wrong. But here's the question, and this is a good question. You might even want to write this down. Does stuff, do I have stuff or does stuff have me? In all of this stuff, do we have stuff or does stuff have us? Where is the focus of my life? Because the answer to that question will go a long ways in determining whether it's down here or whether it's up there. And Paul says, stay with me. You're doing good. Most of your eyelids are open. And Paul says, the secret, the answer to this the answer to being able to, to, to kind of move away from the stuff, not that it's bad, but to, to, to retrain so my focus is not here, but my focus is there. Paul says the answer, the secret to that is found there in verse 3 where it says, set, the, the things, set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. Can I have verse 3? For you have, say it with me. Say it again. Died. How about one more time? Died. If then you be raised with Christ, that's the decision. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, there it is, right there. There's the key to learning how to focus on the things above and not the things down here. You, sir, you, ma'am, have to begin to think 
like a dead man, like a dead person. It has been my experience through the years in ministry and having been around a lot of people who are dying or in the process of dying. It's been my experience that the closer a person comes to death, the more their focus changes from the, the, the problems or the responsibilities or the stuff of this world, the more their focus changes from there to the things of eternity and giving thought to the things of eternity and what's on past this. Because the person who is about to die or in the process of dying knows instinctively, you don't even have to tell them this, they know instinctively that they're about to leave all of this stuff behind as I and, and many others have said through the years, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. And as a person grows closer to death and they begin to realize, whoa, all this stuff doesn't even matter anymore. I don't even know what I did with the key to my stuff rental unit. What's up there? What, what's that going to be about? Wow. Wish I'd have focused on that a little sooner. So Paul says, you got to start thinking like a dead man now. Don't wait till you're dead to think like a dead man. <laughs> I mean, think about it. A dead man don't care what kind of car he's hauled around in. Dead man's not interested in keeping up with appearances. Dead man's not interested in getting a job promotion. A dead man doesn't lust. A dead man isn't greedy. A dead man isn't covetous. He's just dead. Paul says, you're dead. If then you have been raised up with Christ, you're dead. And you've got to begin to think that way. Or you're never going to get this. You'll always be caught in this, oh, stuff, stuff, ooh, shiny. Instead of focusing on the things above, which then leads to the third idea to be mindful of. Changing your mind requires discipline. Making up my mind, that's a decision. Setting my mind requires a desire. I have to desire the things above more than the things below. And the people that do that best are people that are dead. Changing your mind requires discipline. Here's the way Paul says it. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked. When you were living in them. Notice how, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't belabor the point. But you see how Paul kind of slides in there. That reminder of judgment. Judgment day. You find that throughout scripture. That the writer just from time to time. They just slide in that day. Don't forget. Judgment. For it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Now listen. That is, that is completely unpopular in the culture in which we live. Do you know that? Nobody wants to hear. Yeah dude, you are. You are a sinner big time, you are condemned, and you are bound for hell. You're going to bust it wide open when you get there. Nobody wants to hear that one. Everybody wants to hear, yeah, you know, sure, you made some mistakes, but you're, you're, you're a good guy. No, Paul says, you better remember, it's on account of these very things that the wrath of God is going to come. And, and it may not be culturally popular, but Hebrews 9.27 is still in the Bible, which says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. Yeah, it's just, it's just a reality. And, and you know who thinks about that verse? Dead people. Or people close to death. Oh, they know that one. 
Paul keeps saying. Do you see how he goes back to the dead guy thing again? Do you see how, how he went back to that in, in, the, in the first part of that verse? Where he begins to, to again say you've got to begin to, to act like a dead person. How does he put it in verse 5? Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now it's interesting, uh, next week, well not next week, is it next week we're painting? Next week we're painting, as far as I know. And uh, so anyway, in a couple few weeks we'll, get to, we'll pick it up. And Paul will go into some more specific sins that we tend to commit against each other. I mean, all sin ultimately is against God, right? But he begins to specifically name some things that we, that we do to each other. But here in verse 5, he's, he's, it's, you could kind of say he's speaking in generalities, but it is sin clearly against God. Dead, he says immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, some people think that, he's, that the idolatry part is just greed. I think he's talking about that whole thing there. All of that stuff put together, immorality, impurity, passion, meaning passion towards something that's, that's ungodly, not passion itself, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, the things that Paul seems to describe there are things that all have to do with this, with this flesh, feeding this flesh, satisfying this flesh, making this flesh feel better or lustful or whatever it does for this flesh. It's all about this flesh. And so, in essence, guess what the idol is? I am, because the focus is on me. It's all about feeding me. It's all about satisfying me. It's all about this craving that I have. And so I become the very idol that I'm worshiping. Because anything that takes the focus off of God, ladies and gentlemen, is idolatry, including myself. And so you've got to, you've got to, here's what you've got to do. In order to think vertically, to think about the things up above, in this respect, as Paul's talking about, you have to live horizontally. In other words, you have to live as if you've already laid it all down. Wish I'd remember to bring some flowers. To think this way, I have to live this way. I'm, I'm, I'm dead to this stuff. And that takes discipline in your life. Now, this is not in your outline. Let me just kind of throw it out there for you. You can write it down if you want or whatever. We spent a, a whole part of the year this year walking through spiritual disciplines that you need built into your life. But if I can just give you some, summarize some things right now. Here's how it starts. You need spiritual nutrition in your life. Okay? If I'm going to focus there and not here, because this is always pulling at me. Look over here. Have this. Touch this. Enjoy this. Again, not that necessarily things... But when those things become my focus or when they lead me into things that are contrary to God's will for my life, impurity, immorality, all those things, they're constantly vying for my attention, constantly grabbing at me. If I'm going to focus here instead of there, I've got to have spiritual nutrition in my life. Here's what that looks like. You need to ingest his word. You need to gorge yourself on the word of God. Can I say that? Now, let me, let me. Some of y'all, and I don't, I'm just telling you because I, I know how it is. I know business of life. I know all that stuff. Some of y'all don't eat enough to feed a bird. You have to ingest the word of God into your life. I, I like, I've never, well, I have been to Europe, but I've never spent much time in Europe. But one of the things I understand about the Europeans, especially uh, the French. I like to go to France sometimes. I like to see Paris. This looks nice. I don't know. But one of the things that I understand about the French is, and the Italians, they're that way too. Maybe I'll go there. They like to eat. 
They really, I mean, it's not just, you know, in America, I mean, we like to eat too, but it's kind of like, all right, hurry up and eat so I can go do whatever it is I'm going to do. But from what I understand, the French, the Italians, the meal is the event. I mean, it's like sit down and, you know, just enjoy the evening, you know, and it's like three, four, five hours. You know, we're like three, four, five minutes, and what's happening in the drive-thru here? <laughs> what, if we, what if we ingested the Word of God like that? What if we just sat down and just, I'm just going to enjoy this meal. I'm just going to take in the Word of God in my life. You need spiritual nutrition in your life if you're going to focus there instead of here. You ever, you ever, you ever hear this? If you go to the gym or you nutritional person, you know, and they say, oh, you're having a hard time focusing. I'm having a hard time focusing during the day. You may need to eat some more. Ingest his word. Second, I would say indulge in prayer. Man, get on your face before God. What, what, what if we did that? from time? And, and listen, can I, can I say this? Now, I've told Samuel this before. I know. Y'all pay me to do that, okay? You pay me to get on my knees and pray to God. I know, I, I've, got, I've got all day, right? I mean, I, don't, I, got, I got plenty to do. I mean, say, never shortage of things to do, but I know that you've got, you know, your, your work schedule that doesn't allow you to get on your knees for some extended amount of time. So I, I understand, man, I know it's tough. It's like I said, man, it's, it's tougher. on it's, it's just compounded here in America. But, but, but you've got to indulge in prayer. You've got to get on your face before God and begin to talk. Well, let me, let me turn that around. You've got to begin to listen and to talk. And that in itself is a, is a learned thing. But, man, you got, if you want spiritual nutrition in your life, you want to change your folks from this to there, yeah, let's just get... Give you just some sort of practical example. Guys, I'm a guy, so I'll pick on guys. Guys, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you, I'll give you a, just a realistic example. I'm not, the other day I was, I was going, coming home from the gym, or I don't know where I was coming from, but um, there was three girls jogging down the road, three scantily clothed girls jogging down the road. It was hot, you know, so I'm sure, you know, they, they're, they're scantily clothed girls jogging down the road. Now, I, I have a choice, right? Come on, guys. Don't leave me hanging here. Don't act like I'm the only... Oh, he is so bad. I've got a choice. I can either look at those women in a way that is not godly. Or I can look away. I can choose to look away. And in that moment, in essence, change my focus. Can I say this? It's much easier to do that if I've spent time talking to God that day, I just seem to be a little more connected when the Spirit of God says, now wait a minute, Clay, are you about to do something that would dishonor me? You've you got to indulge in prayer. And I, I just know how else to put it. I, if you don't find the time for that, then, then it's always going to be this struggle. You've got to have spiritual nutrition in your life. And, and I'll add one more to it. You've got to involve yourself in the work of the kingdom. Man, get, get, get involved in the work of the kingdom, whatever that looks like for you, through a local body of believers, through, you know, whatever various ministries are involved, but involve yourself in the work of the kingdom because as you do, that becomes your focus instead of, oh, I wish I had this, or wow, oh, that per, whatever. Ingest his word, indulge in prayer, and involve yourself 
in the work of the kingdom. It will change your focus from here to there. You need spiritual nutrition. And the second idea for this, this idea of doing this is you need fleshly prohibition. You need spiritual nutrition. You need fleshly prohibition. You need to say no. You need to know when to say when. You need to say enough. You need to turn away. You need to recognize that this flesh, this body, this material stuff, all of this is just stuff, and it's all just passing away. And, and, I, and I just need to learn that, it, that it's okay to not have that or focus on that or, or look lustfully or get, be greedy or whatever the case may be. Dead people know that. Dead people, they don't, they don't have a problem with fleshly prohibition because it's gone. Paul says, you, you want to you, you you do this right? And, and like I say, he's going to get much more detailed in chapter 3. You want to get this right? Then you got to start living like a dead man. If I want to, here's the way I'd put it. It may not make much sense, but this is, it makes sense to me. If I want to die to the things of the world, I have to live as if I'm already dead. That's what it is. Um, we usually talk about a lady named Lottie Moon. We usually bring her up around Christmas time each year because as a church we take up a, an offering annually at Christmas time named in honor of her, a mission offering. But Lottie Moon came from a uh, prominent and wealthy Virginia family. And some people don't know this about her life. She was, came from a well-to-do family, as I understand it. She was engaged to be married to a brilliant young theologian, a professor. And her life was just set up for a life of, of pleasantness and stuff. And she walked away from her life. She walked away from stuff and gave her life in China. Because her focus was more up there than down here. My son Travis and I were in Bolivia a few years ago, and we were working with a ministry that uh, reaches out to the Quechua Indians of the Andes Mountains. And we met a young couple there, and for life, I cannot remember what he did prior to going into ministry, but his wife was a, had been a pediatrician in Oklahoma. They were from Oklahoma, had been a pediatrician in Oklahoma, and they were now living among the Quechua Indians in the Andes Mountains, and, and uh, you know, I, I think it's probably safe to say they, they could have left, lived a very nice, safe, pleasant, stuff-filled life in Oklahoma. But they chose to focus there instead of there. Now, listen to me. Don't get the wrong idea. Don't think, well, Pastor, are you saying that I got I to gotta go overseas and to be a missionary, uh, to, to, to be in God's will, and to die to the things of the world? I got I to go over there? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that if you make the decision, if then you are raised with Christ, if you've pulled the trigger on that and you say, Jesus Christ is my Lord, I've given my life to him, then set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. Make up your mind, set your mind, and change your mind. 
Pastor Clay has certainly given us plenty to think about. While our faith is not simply an intellectual acknowledgement, what we think about goes a long way in determining how we live our lives. The world pulls us away from the things of God, but focusing on the things above helps us live lives here that are honoring to God and productive for His kingdom. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.